All right. So if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Leviticus chapter 23. We'll continue on in our study of, of uh, the biblical uh, Old Testament feasts. We will also, a uh, pretty significant uh, passage for us will be in Exodus chapter 12. And then towards the end of our message, we are going to zoom in uh, also on a passage in uh, Corinthians. And so First uh, Corinthians chapter 5. So um, go ahead and find your place there in Leviticus. So starting in verse 6 through 8, it says, On the 15th day of the same month, that is the month of Nisan, which we talked about with Passover, on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, again, we thank you for um, the blessings of your word. We thank you that, um, God, you speak to us um, through the way that you have have designed the seasons, uh, through the way that you have designed history and the calendar. Um, God, that you have used things in the world um, that you point us to, um, to remind us of your goodness and graciousness to us, to remind us of the plan that you have for our lives. Um, God, that you use those same things to point to the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah. Um, you, you show us how he is a fulfillment of these things. Um, and, and, and yet, as, in, um, as we continue to live faithfully in Jesus Christ, they still have um, a, a bearing on our lives. And so, God, we thank you for all the beautiful intricacy of your word. We thank you for um, the, the clues and the symbolism and the types that you have put into all these different things, um, God, that continue to point us to you and your son. Um, God, we thank you for the testimony of those elements, um, that our faith is emboldened and encouraged. God, that it is shored up because we see these things. Um, God, we pray that you would use these things to draw others to Jesus Christ, that they would see these, um, these connections and that they would um, believe that there is no way that these things could all come together were it not for um, a loving God behind them pointing us in a certain direction. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we're studying here. Um, God, we pray each week uh, that you would bring revival, um, not only to our own hearts, God, not only to our own congregation, that you would bring it to um, Blunt County, uh, that you would bring it uh, to this community through uh, the preaching and teaching of, of gospel-centered churches in our community, through gospel-centered believers in our community. God, that we would be those people, that you would stir in our own hearts and and uh, awaken us and embolden us. God, humble us. Um, God, give us uh, a, a great desire that uh, you would be glorified by the lost coming to know your son, Jesus Christ. Um, God, we are all... Um, lacking in those things to some level. God, we do not have the zeal and the passion um, for your glory and for the good of others um, that we should. And so we ask that you would stir that up in our own hearts, but also, God, that through the power of your spirit that you would move in our community, that, that we would see these things happening and that um, you would use whatever our, our means um, that you seem fit um, to bring people into your kingdom. But again, we humbly ask that we could be a part of that, um, that we would be uh, those messengers, that we would be the people who see the white field that is ready unto harvest, um, and that we would go and and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. God, help us to do that. Um, help us to be those people. Uh, we thank you. God, we praise you. We ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so we begin um, our, our next second festival, right? The Festival of Unleavened Bread. 
probably important to kind of note that when we're reading the Bible, a lot of times, especially in the New Testament, what we notice is that the Festival of Unleavened Bread is so connected to the Passover that the names of the two are interchangeable in some places. So some places the Bible will talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and include the Passover. Sometimes it'll talk about the Passover and be including the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so those two um, concepts, because they start one day apart, the Passover starts on the 14th of Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on the, the 15th, the next day after uh, on the month of Nisan. And so they are, they are intrinsically connected to each other. So what we're going to kind of do to break down our passage today is, one, we're going to look at the observance of the festival. Then we're going to kind of look at the symbolism of it in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. So starting there at the beginning, like I told you, we're going to jump over to Exodus chapter 12. So if you want to quickly turn there, um, because it gives us a little more information about the feast than, than the passage that we see there in Leviticus chapter 3. For seven days, in the observance of the festival of unleavened bread, for seven days, starting the day after Passover, um, the feast was be, to be um, observed. And it was to be observed like this, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 14. This day shall be a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, he shall be cut off from Israel. All right, so so we see this practice that takes place over that week. Two things are zoomed in on in that passage. One, um, I, well, multiple things are zoomed in on. It's, it's a day of convocation, like we said. It's a day of rest, as we've talked about. All of these are, in a sense, um, a kind of Sabbath, but there seem to be two particularly unique elements. One is that during this time, you're not allowed to eat leavened bread. And then um, uh, also, you are not just al- not allowed to eat leavened bread, but you are supposed to get rid of all leaven that is in your house. All right. So you, I'm sure you're probably aware what leaven is. So leaven is just yeast. It's what we call yeast today. Yeast is a, a fungus. Um, it eats carbohydrates and it excretes CO2, which is what makes the bread rise. So when we put yeast in bread, that process um, takes place where it multiplies and it um, it uses, uh, it, it eats the carbs that are in there. It produces CO2, little pockets of CO2 start popping up in the bread. That causes the bread to rise, okay? But here's the deal. So in the ancient world, some of you are cooks, some of you make bread and you put yeast in it and you let it rise. We had some just the other day and we forgot about it and we were afraid that we were going to walk into our house and like the whole kitchen was going to be full of bread um, or something. That was not what happened. Um, It doesn't work quite that quickly or that effectively. But in the ancient world, you didn't just go down to, you know, the Dollar General um, and buy a packet of yeast like you do um, if you're, if you're a baker nowadays. So where did you get yeast? Well, at one level, uh, everywhere. Um, And that's because yeast is just all over the place, all the time. These little spores of yeast fungus are floating through the air right now. They are on surfaces. Um, They're they're sort of everywhere, just existing out there in the world naturally. And so what would happen is eventually you would get a strain of yeast that was doing its job in in the preparation of, you know, they make it to to ferment uh, beer, but they also obviously use it to make um, bread. But once you've got a culture of yeast going, you would have to nurture it, okay? You would have to do something to maintain that yeast um, and keep it alive, essentially. And the way that you would do that, and again, if you're a baker, you know more about this than I do, you would have what's called a starter. So you'd make a lump of dough, and you'd let it rise, and you'd, and you'd get it all good and, and yeasty, and then you'd pull a piece off, right? And you'd take that little piece and you put it in a bowl somewhere and you put a covering over it so the flies couldn't get to it. And that would be your starter. You'd break the whole lump of bread, but then that little piece over there would have enough yeast in it that you could take it on your next batch of bread, work it back into the bread, and, and it would cause that, that, that loaf to, to rise as well. Um, pr- probably many of you in here are familiar with the curse that is friendship bread. Um, the fact that if anybody has ever given you a friendship bread starter, 
it's like having a pet, right? You just have to like keep on taking care of it and feeding it and letting it live forever. All right. Until finally somebody in the house says, we're not doing this anymore. Just let it die. Somebody else will give us friendship bread. Okay. Yeast is like that. Yeast is like a culture. Okay. Um, it's like a pet. You have to feed it. You have to keep it alive. You have to nurture it. That was the same way it was with these yeast cultures in, uh, in the ancient world. And so again, you'd need your batch of dough. You pull a piece off. You put it aside. You'd add it to the next batch. And that's how you would go. But once a year, you were told, according to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to get rid of all the yeast. You were told to, you were commanded to start all over. And that is to remove all yeast from your house and take your little starter lump and get rid of it. And so um, what we find in the scriptures and the practice of Judaism is the way that would go down was it actually started the week before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so what would happen is you would basically have, it makes sense, it happens at the right time of year, you would essentially have a spring cleaning in your house. You would start going through your house top to bottom and getting all of the yeast out. You would clean the house thoroughly. You would sterilize utensils. You would clean surfaces. You would even wipe down walls and ceilings trying to find any um, yeast that might be somewhere in the house. Um, there was a game that families would pray, uh, play. Once the family had gotten rid of you know, most of the yeast or cleaned the house or whatever, the mom would take little pieces of bread. And she would hide them in corners of the house and under things and under tables and whatever. And it was the job of the children to diligently seek through the house, typically with their father, with a candle. And it was this sort of ceremonial game that they would play. They would look in all the corners of the house with a candle, trying to find any vestige of bread that might have yeast in it. When you found it, you got rid of it. Uh, And then finally, you got rid of your starter, that little nub at the end of the batch. So you threw that out, and then that would bring us to Passover night, the 14th night, uh, the 14th day of the the first month of Nisan. Um, On that night, with the Passover feast, you ate unleavened bread. Okay, you didn't have to, the leaven, you didn't have to have leaven for that meal. It was gone at this point. The next day begins the official feast of unleavened bread. It's marked by, again, this day of rest and holy convocation, and then... For seven days, you should have all leaven out of your house and eat no bread that has been made with leaven, okay? Now, here's the cool thing. There's a bunch of cool, kind of like we did last week, we saw this symbolism that pops up there. Well, the same kind of thing happens in um, the Passover, I mean, in the matzah bread that they would make, okay? And so I'm going to show you just like a couple of things. So like we saw this bread that we use for the Lord's Supper tonight, Um like we said, it's called matzah bread. This is the traditional time-honored way of making it. Now, obviously, this bread right here was made in a factory somewhere, but it's still made according to the style of making matzah that has been the case for, for as long as anybody can remember, okay? And so we notice something about this matzah bread when we look at it. Interesting things, okay? For one... It is made, one, you can look at it and you can see stripes on it, right? You can see there's sort of these lines that that go down it. Two, you can notice that if you can see, it's it's pierced, okay? There are holes all through the matzah bread, okay? Um, They actually have special tools. They do these little rollers with spiny forks and you, and like a pizza cutter, and you roll the holes into it. Okay, and then also the way they cook it, they cook it on these sort of like flat griddle, uh, iron, uh, almost like a grill, but like it's textured or whatever. That's what gives it its its look. But it also does this process when you do that. Happens everywhere in the world. You get these burn marks on it, and and people have pointed out those almost have a, a look of bruises on on the matzah. Okay, so here's the interesting thing: the Jews don't know why they make matzah this way. They don't know why. If you ask them, you say, why does matzah look like this? And they go, it's just the way we've always made matzah. Um, we've always done it that way. And yet, we go to the scriptures and we see something interesting happen, particularly in the book of Isaiah. 
When it talks about Jesus, what does it say? It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Okay? This interesting thing happens that they've been making this bread for centuries, and accidentally, it looks a whole lot like a representation of a sacrificed Jesus. Okay? And somebody might say, all right, cool, Ash, like, but not exactly. So that's, that's, that's a little bit nebulous, but there's something interesting about that reality, but it gets even more interesting because here's the deal. Jews all over the world participate in this Passover celebration every single year. And another interesting piece is, is they don't know where the traditions came from that are celebrated by everybody every single year. So there are these pieces to the ceremony of Passover that always happen everywhere. And yet you say, why do you do that? And they'll give you different traditions will give you different answers. And what that means is they don't know why they do it, right? Each tradition has had to make up a reason that they practice that. But they, they don't know a, a central reason why it started to be that way. And here's a cool part of that Passover celebration, okay? At a certain point in the evening, there's a tape, there's a, there's a, there's a plate on a table, and it has three pieces of this, okay? Three pieces of matzah sitting at the, at, on the table. At a certain point, the middle piece is removed, it is broken, and then it is taken and hidden in a bag to where nobody can see it, and it's placed away from the rest of the meal, all right? That bag or that piece that's broken off is called the afikomen. So the afikomen is, it comes from a Greek word, but basically what it means is the thing that comes after. The thing that comes after. And something interesting happens at the end of the meal. So at the end of the meal, this piece of bread that's taken out of the bag is found, and every single person at the feast eats a piece of this bread. And it is forbidden for you to eat anything after that. This is the last thing that you ever eat at the Passover meal. It's the final piece. It's the thing that comes after. It's the thing that comes at the end. But after that, no further things are eaten. Now, here, again, is something interesting. One, they don't know why there's three pieces of bread on that table. When you ask, why are there three pieces of bread? Don't know. Why do you take the middle one? Don't know. Why do you break it? Don't know. Why is it hidden from us? Don't know. And then another interesting piece to the whole thing is that that Afikoman piece of bread, after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that piece that is hidden in the bag was then it was determined that that piece would be the piece that was the replacement for the Passover sacrifice. Because after 70 AD, there's no temple anymore. You can't rightly sacrifice the sheep, the lamb anymore, okay? So as families practice the Passover every time, they go, something has to stand in for the Passover lamb. What is it? Well, it's that middle piece of bread that was broken and hidden away from us. That will be the Passover standard. Why do you do that, Jewish people? We don't know why we do it. That's just what the traditions are and we've always done. Well, I'm here to tell you, I think we know why they do it. Is all of those things are pointing to the Trinitarian God, the person of Jesus Christ being sacrificed, entombed. Entombed when? Well, for the day that the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place in. I mean, obviously, he was put in the tomb that evening, raised the next morning. But the time that he's in the tomb mostly is that day of Unleavened Bread. Jesus, again, we don't know for sure. Because, right, we don't. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it is very possible and would make perfect sense to us that when Jesus at the Lord's Supper said, take and eat, this is my body, that he is pointing towards that bread, that he is pointing towards that afikoma, that piece of bread that is in the center that would end up being the representative of the Passover feast. And he's saying, what is this bread? It is my body. 
the piece that is broken for you, that's sacrificed for you, it is my own body. So we have all this symbolism in the bread itself, in the unleavened bread. But let's talk about the progressive symbolism of leaven and of unleavened bread as we move throughout the Bible. So in the Old Testament, the first and most obvious symbol of the unleavened bread has to do with the flight from Egypt after Passover. So when the Israelites didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise, they had to hit the road quickly. Um, the, the, the evening happens of Passover when, when God comes and kills the firstborn of, of, of the nation. The next day, they've got to be on the road. So they don't have time to let the bread rise. So they make this bread. It's actually sometimes called that, that matzah is called the bread of haste. All right. Um, because it was made without worrying about letting it rise and, and, and doing it quickly. So that's obviously the first symbolic element of it. But the flight from Egypt represents something more than just the physical occurrence of that historical event. We're not just commemorating a historical event because the flight from Egypt represents something else too. It represents the flight from slavery. It represents the flight from the influence that Egypt has on the Israelites. Because here's an incredible thing that I had never really thought about until I was studying this week. Um, It's an incredible thing to think. Israel had been in slavery so long that they had forgotten themselves, okay? But more than that, because remember something, it's not so much that they forgot themselves, it's that they never actually knew themselves in the first place. Why? Think about it. Israel, when they came into slavery in Egypt, they weren't a nation. They weren't a people. They weren't a community, okay? The Bible tells us that 70 people, went down when Jacob's family went down, when Joseph was in, in Egypt and his family came down, when they came to Egypt, there were 70 people as a family. Okay. Israel began their entire context as a people group, as a nation beginning in slavery. Right. That's a, that's an important thing to remember about who they are as a people. They began their lives in slavery. Just as a social aside in our own personal context, there's a reason why blacks in the South during the slavery era are associating so much with the stories of the Exodus and the people of Israel, okay? Because for many of those people who had been brought to America as slaves, they had lived their entire lives in a culture of slavery. They never knew what it was like to be the people who they had been in their in their home nations, all right. And that's the case of the people in, in Israel. Their, their culture begins in a foreign land. Their whole context of their identity is slavery. And when freedom finally comes, God is saying, you have to leave this place and you have to leave everything about it behind. You have to leave their gods and you have to leave their practices and all aspects of their society that you have picked up. You have to leave it all behind and you have to go to this new place that I have for you. And I promise you, I have something better for you. I have a home for you and a future for you and a life for you and a culture for you. But you've got to leave Egypt behind. You've got to free, be freed from the leaven of Egypt. And so the unleavened bread represents separation from Egypt, but it also represents consecration to God, right? To be set apart as God's people, not influenced by the place that you came from. But here's the deal. And we know this when we read the Old Testament. Israel demonstrates that that's easier said than done. It is hard to walk away from your past, to walk away from everything that is familiar, Even when it was oppressive, it's hard to walk away from it. It's hard to walk away and start over and be somebody new. Every time Israel gets in trouble when they're wandering in the desert, what do they say? If we could only go back to Egypt. Things were so much better in Egypt. We were fed in Egypt. We had houses in Egypt. There was water in Egypt. Everything was better back when we were slaves under the oppression of Egypt. I believe if we're honest about it, we do the exact same thing in our own hearts all the time. And we say the same thing. It is hard to change thoughts 
and attitudes and values and insecurities and the way you were raised and the traumas that you were, have endured. It's hard to get past those things. Those things shape us in all kinds of different ways. Even when we're freed from them, we still feel like we have to go back to them sometimes. And so here's my opinion. I'm not, I didn't find anything that specifically referenced this in terms of other people commenting on it in the Bible, but I think the Feast of Unleavened Bread is illustrated for us in the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Israel gets to the promised land. The spies go in. What happens? They come back and 10 of them say, there's no way we can conquer this place. It's it's too hard. There's too many obstacles. Fortified cities, Goliath-like giants living in the land. It's rich and it's beautiful and there's sustenance there, but we can't do it. We can't follow God into this place. Everybody says that except for um, for the two, Joshua and Caleb. And so what does God have to do? God says, I can't use you unless you can walk away from all this stuff, right? I can't make you into the people that I've called you to be unless you can walk away from Egypt and slavery. And if you can't do that, then there is going to have to be a period of unleavening in the nation. And so what happens? For 40 years, they sit in the desert until all that generation who is unwilling to walk away dies. And you know what's cool? Is when they finally say, the time has come for us to now go into the promised land, we see a picture of all these things in Joshua chapter 5. It says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month. In the evening on the plains of Jericho, right? So when's the day that they finally decide it's time to take the promised land? It's time to go in and and, and receive what God has for us? It's Passover. Of course it is. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Okay. We even see a picture right there of what the next festival that we're talking about, the festival of first fruits, right? The people come into the land. They, they, they feast on the, the blessings of the land, the first fruits of the land. And so you see this whole picture of, of that, that unleavened bread Passover week. In, in that story, okay? And so, so that's, that's the first idea. Symbolism. Flight from Egypt, but not just flight from Egypt. Flight from slavery of Egypt. Flight from the influence of Egypt. Alright? As we get to the New Testament, the picture changes a little bit because Egypt's not the problem anymore when we get to the New Testament. Once we get to the New Testament, there's a whole lot of talk about the leaven of somebody else. The leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven of the Sadducees. The leaven of Herod. The disciples are told to beware the leaven of those groups. And then in Matthew 16, he makes it explicit that he's not talking about their bread. He's not saying don't buy bread from these people. He's saying watch out for their teaching. Watch out for their doctrine. Watch out for what they're telling you is right. Because they're not right. That is unrighteousness. Jesus is calling Israel to remove itself from slavery again. But this time, to the Pharisaic legalism to the unbelieving legalism of the, of the Pharisees. And so leaven is still the same in many cases. It represents this outside negative influence, but it's shifted from the Egyptians to the Pharisees and, and Herod and the Sadducees and others. But obviously when we add these references together, we can get a general picture of what's actually going on. We're not just talking about influence. We're talking about sin. Whether it's Egypt or, or the Pharisees or whoever, getting rid of leaven is about getting rid of sin. And that is, I believe, the ultimate theme of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened, uh, Unleavened Bread is a festival of sanctification. Okay, It is a festival where, and that sanctification word, we use it, 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 it it's a little bit nebulous in some ways, but we talk about sanctification being uh, the, the process of being freed from sin, being set apart to obedience to God and living in holiness to God as he has called us to. We understand that to be a lifelong process in many ways, but what we're going to see in just a second is that it is also a definitive process that is taking place. 
So here's the interesting thing. Once you get out of the Gospels, you pretty much see only one more reference in the whole uh, writings of Paul and the other epistle writers to leaven or unleavened. But man, it's a critical one because it kind of explains the whole process for us. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you want to turn there, that's kind of where we're going to camp for the rest of our, our time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. All right. So what we see here is a sort of multi-layered fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the New Testament. The first thing that we notice, look at verse 8 again. Just like we just said, leaven itself is is not just the influence and teaching of Egypt or Pharisees, but it is the influence of sin. Specifically says, get the leaven out. What leaven? The leaven of malice, the leaven of evil, okay? That's what leaven is. That is the, the picture of leaven. The removal of leaven is the removal of sin from our lives. Now, here's the question, though. How do we accomplish that? How do we accomplish the removal of sin from our lives? Well, the problem is, is this. It's a little more complex than just throwing out your starter lump, okay? It's a little more complex than just wiping down all the surfaces in your house. Verse 7 says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay, and notice something about the language. Cleanse out the old leaven. That's an imperative statement. That is a command to you. That is something that you are supposed to do. Cleanse out the old, old leaven. All right? Get rid of it. Get rid of sin in your life. You are commanded to do that. So that you may be a new lump. But then here's the key. It says so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Notice that is a statement that we would call an indicative statement. It is a statement of an established reality. It's something that is the case already. So Paul says, get the leaven out of your life because you are already unleavened. Get the sin out of your life because the sin has already been cleansed from you. Well, again, how is that accomplished? It's in the next line. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The symbolism begins to stack up on us at this point. Jesus is the unleavened bread. Jesus is the bread without sin. All right. In the ceremony that we talked about earlier and we, we, we in, in the in the Passover celebration of the Jewish feast. Right. That unleavened bread, that sinless bread. We're saying Jesus is that Jesus is the unleavened bread. All right. But that's not the end of it, because also in the death of Christ, what happens? Our sin is placed on Christ. And what happens? Well, it's significant what day the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts in terms of the Christian calendar, because it starts on the day that we call Holy Saturday. It starts on the day that Jesus Christ is in the tomb, that the house has been cleansed, that the sin has been placed on him and put away somewhere. It's been removed from the house. It's been buried. It's been put in the grave. It's dead. Okay? You have died to your sin. It's not there anymore. Jesus is our sanctification. 
He has accomplished our sanctification. He has fulfilled our sanctification. He has fulfilled it and accomplished it in the same way that he has accomplished our justification. That is, our atonement, the, the, the imputation of righteousness, the propitiation, again, I'm using lots of big theological terms, but the, the, Jesus has borne the wrath of God in your place. He has given you his righteousness and that has made you right or justified with God. Okay? That is a definitive event. It has happened. It is accomplished if you are in Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to you that at, from one vantage point, sanctification is exactly the same way. We are completely sanctified in Jesus Christ because he is unleavened and he has taken on our leaven and put it in the grave. Okay? Jesus fulfills the feast of unleavened bread just as he does the Passover feast. It is finished. It is accomplished. And yet, there is also a difference between justification and sanctification. Over and over again in the Bible, we are told that we are a new status. We have a new status. We have a new reality. Okay? Over and over again, we hear the indicative. Okay, you are a new creation in Christ. That's not a, well, you are a new creation unless you do a couple of things and you keep up with it and you hold on to, you know, none of that. It says you are these things. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, right? These are indicative statements of the way things are now. And yet over and over again, there are still imperatives there. There's still commands for us to do something. Resist the devil, flee from sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Make no provision for the flesh. All of these things. Even here in this passage, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but the leaven, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened of, of, of sincerity and truth. Okay? It's a command. It's saying you have to celebrate this in a new way, living it out in terms of sincerity and truth. What we find is when we go through the New Testament, there is both an indicative statement of who you are, and there is also an imperative, an authoritative authoritative command that we must live out by spirit-enabled obedience. Okay, again, not we're doing it on our own, not we're picking it up by picking this up by our own bootstraps, none of that. We are saying it is the spirit working in us that allows us to do it, and yet we are commanded to do something. And so I think a great place to see this is in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to, or you can just listen as I go. But listen to how quickly the indicative and the imperative bounce back and forth between each, to each other, because they are both realities. So Colossians 3, starting verse 1, says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, indicative, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's an imperative. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. That's an imperative. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Indicative. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, and passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, imperative, seeing that you have put off the old flat self with its practices and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Indicative statement. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all, but Christ is all and in all. Indicative statement. So therefore, Put on these as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving that person. Imperative. And the, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you almost also must forgive. Indicative and imperative, right? Okay? Over and over again, we see this pattern all through the New Testament. And it's, and it's, and it's a debate that goes back and forth, but you can't escape it if you just read the words. 
is Jesus says, you are something different now. You are no longer slaves in Egypt. Okay? You have been set free. So you know what? Live like free people. Command. Imperative. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is fulfilled in Christ. And yet, because of the complex way that sanctification works out in the scriptures, there is a sense that we are still in the process of getting rid of the old leaven. Jesus has accomplished it and he's fulfilled it. And yet, it is something we do every single day. Every single day, we are practicing the unleavening of our lives, the removal of sin from our lives. And so again, indicative, Christ is your freedom. He is your holiness. Imperative, so live free. Live holy. You're not in bondage anymore. So stop living like a slave. Become what you already are in Jesus Christ. The imperative is accomplished on the basis of the indicative. The work that Christ has done is the basis, it is the foundation, it is the power, it is the efficacy of what you are called to do in your daily life in terms of sanctification. That is the picture, I think, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we live in that every single day. So this is what I would encourage us to. Again, man, I think we talk about this a lot because I think it's something that is missing from the broader evangelical and even reformed church in the United States. Man, it's not that we're supposed to focus on Jesus and what he has done less, okay? Man, that is the, that's the foundation of everything. It is, it is the, it is in the warp and woof of everything we do. Okay. We don't think of that less, but, but we have completely ignored another piece of this to say that Jesus grace has saved us not just from something, but it has saved us to something. It didn't just get us out of slavery for the sake of being out of slavery. It got us out of slavery so that we would live as free people. You have been saved for freedom. So live like free people in the grace and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what I hope is the case is that we hold on to that, okay? Are there dangers in those things? Of course there are. Can we get off track and start thinking that our personal holiness is actually what's most important in the sense that somehow we have accomplished these things on our own, that we're doing them better than the person sitting next to us, that we're certainly doing them better than the people out there, that we have won or we have earned or we have deserved or we have done any of these things? Are there dangers? Of course there are. That's what war is like, okay? We're in a war every single day of our lives, and there is nothing but dangers, Okay? The devil is smart, he is crafty, he will use anything we do and any right decision and right understanding, and he will try to twist it and turn it and get it off course and steer it away. Okay, But the reality is, is that, man, just because there's dangers doesn't mean that we can just say, well, cool, I don't want to deal with those dangers, so I'm going to ignore that part, and I'm just going to focus on this part over here. You can't have, and get this, I think this is just a little side point, and again, maybe it doesn't mean anything. Do you think it might be significant that when we get to the New Testament, it almost seems like they can't figure out the separation between Passover and unleavened bread? They can't seem to separate them anymore. They can't say our atonement is here and our sanctification is here. And there's a hard line between these two things. No, what do they do? They just start talking about how the Passover feast is coming, and that includes unleavened bread. And unleavened bread is coming, and that includes Passover. Why? Because these things are the same. They're connected. You can't have justification without sanctification. You can't have sanctification unless you're justified. They are connected to each other. When one, when the indicative takes place, the imperative is commanded on the basis of the indicative. Okay? We need to live our lives out in that way. Let's close in a time of prayer because I'm just going to keep on saying indicative and imperative over and over again. And you're going to be like, yeah, we get it, Ash. We get it. Um, uh, so let's go to Lord in prayer. Um, asking that God would work these things in our hearts, man. It is easy for us to just continue to look and say, boy, I'm so thankful that Jesus saved me and never say, all right, what did he save me to? What does he ask of me now? Not that I could earn it. Not that I could do anything to be worthy of it. 
But man, if I want to, if I, if I love Jesus and I want to honor his sacrifice, if he has commanded me to do something, then, then what else would I do but live my life for him? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would work these things in our hearts. Father God, we thank you that you have sent sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be our Passover lamb. God, his sacrifice has accomplished our salvation. It has accomplished our justification. God, because of his life sacrifice, because of his blood shed, God, because of his body broken, he is the Passover lamb, and he is the Afikoman bread. He is the last thing. He is the last word. Father, there is nothing else in terms of a further revelation that will be shown to us in terms of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of your salvation to us. God, in 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 your word, in the past, you spoke to us in at different times and in different ways. Through the prophets, in our own time, you have spoken to us through Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we find fulfillment of all these things. We thank you that he is our Passover sacrifice. And God, we thank you that he is our unleavened bread. We thank you that he is the bread that is cleansed of all sin that no trace of leaven is found in him. And that he is the right fulfillment of the feast to remove all sin from our lives. God, we thank you that through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are free from sin, that we are counted as free from sin because of Jesus Christ. And now we ask God that you would shape us in such a way through the power of your spirit, working through our own wills and decision, through our striving, through our effort, God, that you would continue to sanctify us so that we would live holy lives in Christ Jesus. God, so that the image that has been stamped on us of Jesus Christ, that our lives would form into that mold. And that we would in all ways look like our Savior. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Probably, um, I would say, maybe I'm wrong, but probably one of the lesser recognized um, feasts of the Bible in some way. Um, uh, several of the others seem to have a little more emphasis when we get to the New Testament, and yet there is there is rich significance in the Feast of First Fruits. So we're going to talk about that next week. So hope you can be here. Um, uh, hope you have a great week. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you give you peace. We'll see you next week.